This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a GIST newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash GIST news. It's Wednesday, February 27th, 2019. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Michael Cohen is not a smart man. I don't say this to insult him. I say it for a specific reason. Follow me there. I never met him, although I may have met him. We're from kind of the same area. He's from the five towns of Nassau County, a ritzy area next to the Queens border. That's where striving Jewish folks who grew up hard on the Lower East Side moved their families once they made it in professional fields or the schmata business. My parents taught in the five towns. I have dozens of friends from the five towns based mostly on my vow never to pay retail. The five towns were referenced in Goodfellas this way. It's okay, but it's like you died and woke up in Jew heaven. Now, Cohen is from Lawrence, which has, or had, more had, a top public school, Lawrence High School. Cohen could have gone to Lawrence High School. Instead, he went to Woodmere Academy, which is a nice school for sure. It's just a bit worse and a bit easier than the public school that he was entitled to go to for free. I don't want to speculate. There are usually three reasons why you go to Woodmere Academy over Lawrence High School. One, you have a learning disability, and Woodmere Academy can accommodate you and your learning style better. Two, the larger school was difficult in terms of socialization. Or three, your parents are snobs and think private school is always better than public. It is not an insult or a calumny against those who go to Woodmere Academy. There are many fine attendees of Woodmere Academy. It's just usually that's why you go there. Cohen then went to American University, which is now a quite selective school, 29 acceptance rate in the mid-80s when he attended there. American University accepted more applicants than it rejected. Fine. Then Cohen went to the Thomas Cooley School of Law affiliated with Western Michigan. It is the worst law school in America. That is a quote from the website Above the Law. All right, maybe it's not the worst, but it probably is, or at least a good case can be made that it is the worst. It consistently ranks as the easiest law school to get into. The passage rates of graduates, the bar passage rates are just about 50%. That's 20% lower than the average Michigan law school. Look, one school has to be the worst. There are plenty of people who take the LSAT who literally can't get into any law school. But if you could get into only one law school, that one law school is often Cooley Law School, where Michael Cohen went. So Michael Cohen attended a law school that you go to if you can't get into another law school after attending a college that was more easy to get into than it was hard after attending the least rigorous high school in his town, uh, as opposed to attending the better high school that he could have gone to for free. Michael Cohen, again, is not a smart guy. He was not a smart guy engaged in not smart grifts on behalf of a not smart client. And the reason I say this is not to insult the man or his schools or Cooley Law School, but to establish this. His testimony is not clever. It is not well-crafted. It is not expertly backfilled to fit in with an existing narrative. He is not smart enough and has never been clever enough to be anything but a straightforward blunderbuss. The lapels of his suits may have sharp edges, but Michael Cohen is the very definition of obtuse, a dullard. So when he says, Donald Trump instructed me to lie, it is because... Donald Trump instructed him to lie. And when he talks about presidential threats, it is because he has been threatened. And when he says, it seems unbelievable that I was so mesmerized by Donald Trump. He is admitting he is so weak minded as to be mesmerized by Donald Trump. When he talks about Trump's racism and Trump insulting the intelligence of black people, it is not because 
he concocted a story. It is because Trump insulted black people. It is not because Cohen looked at the available record and said, oh, what tale, what fanciful story can I create that fits a narrative? Republicans on the committee and off have pointed to Cohen's poor character as a sign that he is not to be believed. I am doing something else. I am pointing to his low intelligence, which we have seen on full display as he has been a public figure, but also in this testimony a bit. I am pointing to his low intelligence as a reason that he should be believed. He's not smart enough to be making this up. He's saying it because it's true. Not that actually intelligent people, such as yourselves, need to be convinced. Mr. Cohen, you called Donald Trump a cheat in your opening testimony. Uh, what would you call yourself? A fool. On the show today, no spiel. I really have to process this whole thing. Plus, we might also have peace in our time in the Korean Peninsula. Somehow more peace than we got the last time when the president assured us peace in our time. Also, there's this issue of an ongoing slate retreat. I will tell you how the breakout sessions go in a couple days. But first, on this, a day when we're all looking at the pained expressions of members of Congress as Michael Cohen is testifying. And those pained expressions are causing some PTSD and all of us. Imagine their staffers, the people they turn to, who they, the members of Congress, take out their frustration on after a day like today. That is our issue. How legislators treat their staffs and what it means for us voters. We talk to an expert with particular focus on a specific senator who may or may not have attempted to comb a Cobb salad. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few, Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So there was this senator, and she's really intense, and uh, she had to eat a salad, and she used a comb. Scandal? I don't know, but it does bring up the issue of 
leaders in the Congress, their staffing, bad bosses, how much should we as voters care? There's been a lot of statistics about Amy Klobuchar and turnover, but I wanted to dive into these statistics and also talk about the context and what they really mean. So joining me is Casey Burgat, who is a governance fellow at the R Street Institute, and he not only knows all the stats, but he has been studying them and analyzing them. How important is a staff to a senator, a staff to a member of Congress, and what can we glean from how that member of Congress treats that staff and what turnover says about that treatment? Casey, hello. How are you? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. So whenever I hear about these issues, the first day story is this is the thing that happened. And the second day story is open secret in Washington. So was the idea that I know there are stats on this, but was the idea that Senator Klobuchar had a hard time keeping staff happy and employed? Would that fall into the category of open secret of uh, among people like you and people who watch the Hill? Yeah, probably on on the inside Beltway, uh, folks. They, there is a, a known uh, reputation with her, but, but by all means, she is not the only one. And her name it definitely isn't the the most frequent one to come up when we talk about tough offices to work in, or offices that staff quickly depart, or even offices that staff try to avoid at all costs. So a lot of the reporting on this dealt with or relied on statistics from an outfit called Legistorm, which is pretty authoritative. You get most of your statistics from them. Is that right? Absolutely. They're the cream of the crop. So what they do is they don't just give you a accounting of how many staffers turned over. They kind of divide by the salary of a staffer. And this way, if the top person on the staff turns over, it would be maybe the same as three very junior people leaving. And that's a proper way to do it, you think? I think there's uh, reasonable cases for for multiple measures they're trying to get at. And I I agree with them if we're looking at kind of looking at how turnover can affect outcomes. They're trying Mm -hmm. to get at how higher level staffers, those that are more responsible for policy issues or advancing a piece of legislation through committee, you know, these higher uh, policy related positions, they're more likely to make more. They're more likely to stay. And their turning over is likely to have a more uh, legislative impact on the office. So that's that's why they use that indicator. That makes sense. Do you know Klobuchar's raw numbers beyond the legislative adjusted for salary number? Absolutely. I looked this morning knowing you might have yes. asked about this today. <laughs> so yeah, I did look and it's it's not good news there either. And that's that's probably a good reason for why the, the Legistorm indicator is a solid one too, is when you look at these indicators, whether it's raw staff count that leave, kind of the traditional private sector measure of turnover, how many people mm-hmm. leave in a given year, they usually map on pretty well with the, the weighted turnover. It's really hard to get high-level staffers with a low staff count departure. So you, these map on pretty well to each other. Do you know where she ranks in the Senate in terms of just overall turnover? I do know that she averages 23% of her staff, raw staff leaving per year. And Senate overall is what, about 20? 15.5 in the Senate. In Congress, yeah. on the whole, it's about 17.7. The House is a little higher just because there's some political dynamics uh, every two-year election, mostly. Senate, on average, 15.5. Senator Klobuchar is right at 23, which is an average of about 13 people per year, which is definitely on the high side. How many staffers does a senator have? It, it ranges because people don't really know this, but uh, each member is technically their own boss. of their. They, yeah. they call it the legislative enterprise. Every single office is completely different at the discretion of the member of Congress themselves. They set legislative priorities. They hire and fire under their own discretion. They set pay caps, as AOC has recently done, and pay minimums. It's up to them. But on average, there's about 50 staffers. Leaders get more. Uh, it depends on how far away the, the district is, how big the state is, stuff like that. 
It might be that certain senators, certain people in business just, I don't know if you would say enjoy, but their way of doing business is to have high turnover. They expect to be very tough on people and to have people leave and that's fine with them. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to work that way. Whereas probably others, you know, think of themselves as like a longstanding family business. And all these people have been with me a long time. Is one worse or one better? It's up to the member themselves. I always say that staffers are kind of the, the the priority markers of the member themselves because members have so much discretion in their their individual offices. Who they hire for how long, how much they pay them really can tell you a good deal about what they prioritize in their office. Like you said, the one model is to bring campaign folks or uh, folks that have worked in state or local offices with them. They trust them. They have this uh, back and forth camaraderie. The other model is kind of the other one you're talking about, the healthy turnover where new ideas, fresh blood and fresh faces can kind of stimulate uh, even a rivalry. It's like the FDR LBJ model where I am extremely demanding. It will benefit you in the end, but man, it's going to be hell while you're here. Now, the question is, though, since we, we, the people Mm -hmm. are doing the hiring, why should we care? And I heard you talking about this on the Government Affairs Institute podcast, and the cast there said some interesting things. But why don't you recount the basic reason why it matters if you churn through staff, and then I want to ask you a follow-up on it. They're incredibly important. As I already said, the, the member is pulled in so many different directions. They are stretched so th- thin in time and resources, which means they have to rely on the people they hire to to help them do their jobs. They have to, d- to give a large leeway to people to synthesize information, to tell them when to vote, where to be at what time, who to talk to, who's knowledgeable about the issues. It's an extremely hard job to be a member of Congress. And then so you your, your reliance is on the people to help do the duties that are expected of you. And when when they're there, not there, turning if they're turning over at a, an incredibly high clip, it's like any private sector experience. You lose the expertise, you lose the experience within your own business, and you have to look elsewhere to fill it. And the 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 learning curves are big. This Congress is there's no school for Congress. It, there might even right. be a steeper learning curve there. To there's you can't train for it. So you try to keep people within house that prove that they're ready and willing to do the job. And so when you lose them, your office suffers. So in that podcast, there was an anecdote about a member of Congress who was fumfered in a committee meeting. And one of one of you guys said, this is common. Whenever you see a member of Congress in one of those public sessions, not knowing what they're talking about or not having the facts at hand or just looking overmatched, that's usually on the staff. And I was thinking, what an irony to be considering this in the light of Klobuchar because she distinguished herself to me in the minds of, uh, in the eyes of many observers as just being fantastic mm-hmm. on that Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know this isn't the only rubric for success, but you know she will tout that she introduced and passed more, more laws than anyone in the Senate. Mm-hmm. So it seems that if the staff is so important because of how it affects your job as a senator, but if the job of a, that she's doing as a senator by these metrics and by observation seems to be doing quite well, then isn't there a disconnect there? Right. So these are two different things that I think both are important to the the representative job of a member of Congress. One is managing your office, like that that's treating your staff well, making sure that people are paid a living wage, that they, they like the work that they do, they're eligible for promotion. You know, all the things that we like in private sector jobs is true of the congressional experience. The other side is a lawmaker. And those 
those two things sometimes don't overlap and oftentimes they don't. Think of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, one of the most tough person on uh, on his staff. He made him work incredible hours. Yeah. He, he cussed him out. He made him force them to be subject to to pictures that aren't even worthy of, uh, of this conversation. But he was one of the most effective lawmakers of all time. Uh, yeah. Those two Master things, of the Senate, I think they called him. <laughs> exactly. And that was well earned. And Senator Klobuchar is an incredibly inf- effective lawmaker. That doesn't mean she's the best boss. And it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that that should be weighted the same when you go to the ballot box to make your decision. But it is something that voters should think about, because especially when you're running for something like the presidency, which is, as we're learning more and more, a managing experience. Um, yeah. This is taking care of your staff. The, the administration, current administration has incredibly high turnover. We see day to day headlines about how that affects policy who's talking about what, and uh, they're trying to figure out who knows what when, and it just gets incredibly hard when people are departing on a daily basis. Casey, do you love the Congress? More than almost everything. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, do you I, I think really do. If, and, and I've seen some of your uh, writing about how to make Congress great again. Are bad bosses part of that solution? Reforming tyrannical bosses at the top? It's a good question and one that definitely deserves attention, and I'm glad these these curtains are being peeled back a little bit. Uh, It's part of the job, whether we like it or not, whether you believe it should be important or not. But uh, more than anything, we should care about the staff experience. This should be a career for folks. It's a a place where people come out of college. That's why it's so young. It skews young. They want to do good. They want to come to the, the marble halls of Congress and pass legislation that helps people. And then they realize pretty quick that sometimes the staff experience just kind of sucks, whether it's your own boss, whether you're not getting paid, you can make more in the private sector a couple miles away, even have more influence on policy. So we need to capture the the civic duty that people come to D.C. with. I I teach classes. I see it every day. They come for the right reasons. We need to give them more than enough reasons to stick around and make a career out of this because we will all benefit from the experience that they do and get in doing so. So last question about Klobuchar and Mm -hmm. what's been reported. Is it mostly for the good that this issue is getting out there or has the way that it's been getting out there, which with all anonymous quotes and the telling detail of the comb and the salad, has that in fact in some way, you know, worked against what you always try to, what you're living your life to do, which is make Congress a more humane and functional place. Right. It, it, the, the antidote will stick, right? We will remember Mm -hmm. the comb story and that's, I understand why I understand the journalistic side of it. But this was a problem before Klobuchar. There's many of these bosses with even criminal behavior that should be looked at. And even if we don't reach the level of criminality, let's just talk about the experience of being a congressional staffer. It is something that we want people to serve in. It's something that we want them to be proud of what they do and stay for a long time because they're good at doing it. So all of the attention, I'll take it because it's a means for me to talk about these things when no one was calling two years ago when I was writing my dissertation and I'm the only one that's ever read it. So I'll take the attention, but I I wish it was was under different circumstances, which leads to another important point about how this is reported about uh, the female bosses versus male bosses. Yeah. And, and what we talk about and even give credit for with male bosses of having I re- every Bill Clinton biography you'll ever read paints him as having a volcanic temper. You'll read the word volcanic every single time. And it's almost painted as a picture of like, he is so intense and so so caring about the issues that he'll blow up on staff and even churn through them if they can't hack it as like a means for, for him to do good in his office. So I think there is a huge disconnect. We call them with character flaws of erratic and emotional when male, male bosses don't get the same same sort of description. Uh, I think that's important, and it's it's part of the conversation that we all should have. Uh, and I think the reporting on the Klobuchar stuff has con, kind of swung, swung back and forth to, to kind of warrant all of those perspectives because it's all important. 
Casey Burgat is a governance fellow at the R Street Institute, and he is a PhD candidate, but that depends on someone reading his PhD. I'm done, man. I don't care if you read it or not. I'm done. (laughs) Are you going to be a doctor soon? As soon as May comes around, give me that cap and hoodie. I'm out of here. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced the gist. They're pretty good at clearing the actual lettuce and beets off the comb, but still, my hair smells a little like Dijon. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She's calling bullshit on the words Mike Pesca and comb in close proximity. The gist. Maybe I'm not the easiest boss to work with, but I never actually eat the documents when I'm done reading them. Point for me. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.